This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 46, your podcast about all things related to digital and business transformation the people, process, and technology sides of transformation. I'm excited for today's episode. We are going to have uh, a discussion around uh, the best of. It's a continuation of our best of 2021 series. Last week in our last episode, number 45, we covered the people or the human side of transformation. And today we're going to shift gears and talk about business process, business process management, operational improvement, all that good stuff. That's going to be the focus here today. But before we jump in and sort of lay out the agenda, uh, I'm here with Kyler Cheatham, as always. Kyler, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. So this is fun stuff. This is our chance to look back at mm-hmm. the year and look at sort of the best of our podcast, which we're up to 46 episodes now. And uh, we actually just started this podcast at the beginning of 2021. So we've had a lot of great interviews, a lot of really interesting guests. And so it was pretty difficult to, you know, sort of narrow this down to what we thought were the, the biggest highlights. And so uh, this is actually your idea, Kyler, is, is to do sort of a best of focused on different topics. So we don't have to necessarily just pick the best of all the discussions. We can sort of hone in on different topics uh, related to people, process, and technology. So last week, as I mentioned, we covered people. This week in this episode, we're covering process. And then next week in our next episode, we'll cover technology. Um, so um, we've got uh, a few segments for you today. First of all, we're going to start off with some of the hot topics uh, within digital transformation and business process management, business process improvement. And then we're going to bring in our first clip from a previous episode, from episode number 17. We're going to have Wayne Holtham on the show where he and I discussed uh, target operating model in future state business processes and how you go about that and what are some of the things you should be thinking about. We had a really good full-length conversation. We're going to play you a highlight or some clips from that discussion. And then we're also going to have Jonathan Reed from Diginomica. Um, he was with us back on episode number 21. And in that episode, he talked about all the things that he thinks are important to making digital transformation successful, which includes things related to business process management and operating models and whatnot. And then finally, our uh, final guest or the final clip that we'll sort of review from 2021 uh, goes back to episode number 30. We had Wayne Cavanaugh, who's the CEO of Ninja Nation, which is a high growth uh, company based in the United States. And they're actually growing uh, very quickly. And He's, he's going to be on to talk less about digital transformation per se, but more about how to change a, a business model and an operating model to scale for growth. Um, so really keeping with that business process and operations uh, theme as well. So great episode uh, planned here for you today. We're really excited to, to get into it. So before we bring on the guests, though, and sort of look back at some of these, these highlights from 2021, though, Kyler, what are some of the hot topics you've got for us here this week related to uh, transformation and, and business process and operations? Yeah, absolutely. So something I've been seeing specifically in um, automation, in the vehicle automation world, 
is digital integration and this trend of using applications to bring together all of kind of the connected tissue, the applications, the systems that um, an enterprise uses, but not necessarily adding anything to it. So it basically would be like someone coming in to organize your entire house, right? But they don't actually bring anything into the house but they make sure that the entire house kind of flows the way that you want it to. And I, I wanted to kind of get your feedback on if that kind of enterprise integration technology is something that you've seen in your client work as well lately. Yeah, it, it actually is something that's that's becoming more, more common and more of a talking point, more of a critical success factor for transformation because primarily because with the advent of different types of technologies, whether it be core enterprise systems like ERP or CRM, HCM, or whether it be point solutions that are very specific on certain functions like business intelligence or um, CRM or warehouse management, supply chain management, those sorts of systems. Um, or if you really look at data and different sources of data that are emerging around internet of things and industry 4.0 and smart factories, things like that, what, what today's digital transformations are dealing with are this whole plethora of technologies and data sources and different ways of potentially pulling together data. So that whole integration uh, platform and the whole need to integrate is super important. And in fact, I know we're going to have uh, Wayne Holtham on the show later today talking about something unrelated to this, but he actually, we actually had an interview with him a while back talking about architecture and just sort of what is this whole architecture function? Why is integration important? All that good stuff. And so that, that integration piece, I would totally agree is, is becoming more and more important given the the state of technology uh, in today's landscape. Absolutely, and and the the use of unstructured data, right? So in bringing data from all of these different applications and using it or analyzing it so that it can make automated business decisions is something that it seems like that's kind of where the automation is really being born from is that ability to action and to utilize actionable data. Would you say that's kind of what you've seen in that trend? Yeah, that's where you get into, you know, the machine learning and artificial intelligence and, you know, stuff that sounds really cool, but it won't do much for you if you right. don't make good use of that structured and unstructured data. Um, so I, I think that is definitely a trend, especially given the other trends that I was just mentioning about um, Internet of Things and e-commerce and um, uh, smart factories and whatnot that you, you just have all these different data sources in different formats that organizations have to figure out how to consolidate and how to make meaning from and, and be able to make actionable decisions like you you mentioned. Absolutely. And it's do you think this is going to become in 2022 really a key competitive advantage for specific industries like the automotive industry? I think it can. Um, and I think it's it's something that organizations in general just still haven't cracked the code on. I think the technology is there to support what you're talking about, but organizations, for whatever reason, haven't fully adopted or embraced that whole concept. So the ones that can, though, are going to have a pretty unique competitive advantage in that they can better predict customer demand. They can better predict what their production needs are. Um, they can just better manage their businesses overall and, and do so in a very, you know, in a more efficient and effective way. So. It's not the, I don't want to go so far as to say that if you don't figure that stuff out, you're going to fail. I don't think that's the case, but I do think the ones that can figure that out are going to be, you know, at a, at a definite strategic advantage for sure. 
Absolutely. And who can figure it out the right way, right? And that's what we're kind of talking about today is making sure that your processes are really ready for that technology. And it's not the technology driving your processes type of thing. I know Wayne and others will go into that, but I would like to give you some exciting news that I do have a favorite new buzzword. Are you ready? Oh, for it? I love buzzwords. So yeah, let's, let's hear it. <laughs> okay. It's called data siloing. And really what that means is using best of breed applications, you know, marketing apps, those types of things and utilizing all of that data, but it only lives in that one application. So making business decisions through automation is really what these new kind of snap logic for automotive industry is, is kind of doing, is taking that all from their silos, bringing it into enterprise decision-making. Um, so very exciting. So it's a buzz, it's sort of a, is it a negative buzzword? It's like, it's a buzzword, but it's something you don't want to do, right? Or you're, it's a problem they're trying to solve. You're a data siloer type of thing. Right. You know, we'll be like, <laughs> no one wants to be that. Data siloer. It's going to be trending after this podcast. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. God forbid that you become a data, data siloer. So you better buy our software. That's sort of the message yeah, that the, this company is providing. That's <laughs> But no, you can never have enough buzzwords. That's what I found. That's what I think too. You know, it really makes you sound really cool. Right. <laughs> well, I found a few um, really notable quotes this week from some of the information I was looking at. So I want to share one with you and then we're going to do a quick fill in the blank, which okay. is always fun. For you, maybe not for me. But <laughs> <laughs> it's fun for me. You're right. You're right. right. Data silo, are you? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Digital transformations are excruciatingly difficult to pull off. They're expensive and they always don't achieve ambitious business goals originally envisioned. The trouble often boils down to one thing, fill in the blank. Uh, wow, that's a, in one word or is it, is it like a phrase? Can you give me it's a sort one of thing? thing? So it's technically two words, it's a, it's a phrase. I'm gonna go with change management, even though I don't think that's really what they said. I, it, it, well, I mean, it's along those lines. It's human nature. So uh, throughout this, they talk about operational disruptions due to human nature and that integration or even collision, if you will, with technology. So okay. now that we kind of talked about how those process automations and operating models that can be leveraged with emerging technologies, I wondered your feedback on integrating that into making sure that your operations are not disruptive because of human nature. Yeah, it's a, it's interesting because it's almost like we're talking about the connection, you know, it's all, this is all connected, the people process technology. And I know we're doing our own data, data siloing by having podcast episodes, best ofs that are focused on one data silo with, with uh, people last week, process this week, technology next. But it's easy to see, as you were saying that, it's easy to see how you can if you pull one piece out, it's like a circuit that just doesn't flow now because you don't have the human adoption piece. So it doesn't really matter that you've got the technology piece and the, and the process piece, right? If the people part is what's going to connect the, the other two. And same with technology, you can say the same thing about that. And you can also say the same thing about process. You can't do good change management without having done a lot of the heavy lifting around process work. So uh, yeah, it makes total sense. I think that the human adoption is, is sort of the, the thing that completes the entire, the entire picture. Absolutely. And I think it's really interesting right now as we take kind of a very relevant challenges for businesses, which is our current global labor shortage. 
and mm. look at that as more kind of an operating model or an operation strategy as opposed to a human component. For example, recently Amazon completely changed their overall hiring and, and um, labor model because they had really mastered this short-term worker um, throughout the pandemic and before the pandemic, you know, that was really what they did. They did, even Jeff Bezos said himself that any, any, anyone that works there over two years, they really work to cycle them out of the business through giving them different opportunities, through education and different training. But that short-term labor really, really worked for them. And that's why they're so best of class in hiring um, and training and those types of, of even manufacturing automations. So that if you're just picking or putting together a package, you know, a robot is really taking you through it, that type of thing. And just recently, even this week, they announced that they're moving towards a more attrition-based model. And this study showcased it that companies that really were focused on the company employee relationship um, actually experienced much less disruption with the labor shortages like Target and other big box or retail environments like Amazon did not experience that. And just for some numbers, so everyone can you know get on the same page of how incredible this is, the way that Amazon operated is they actually replaced their entire workforce within eight months. So basically the employee life cycle was replaced fully every eight months. Like that, that's a huge wow. turnover. But they really mastered it because it it made sense for their operating model. And we see now as we're we're seeing this great resignation, this movement of it's not actually the employees that are wrong, it's the work that's wrong. And it kind of exposed this really broken workforce and companies that really did focus on low wage, low skilled, and then high turnover. And I wonder kind of your feedback to that, just based on, we're talking about operations today and labor is a huge part of that. How do these kind of labor business models evolve to meet these labor shortages? Wow, that's a, that's a, a big question. I, if I had an answer, if I had a really good answer to that, I, I'd probably, you know, there'd be like governments from all over the world hiring me <laughs> to help them and be paying me tons of money to help figure out this problem or solve this problem. Um, you know, I don't know. I, I that's a good question. I don't know. First of all, I find it fascinating that that is sort of like Amazon's way of, of just sort of embracing the reality mm -hmm. and just sort of accepting that that's the way it is and sort of mastering the art of what to do about it and how to, how to manage that. Is that, is that what you're saying? And that whole thing is that they're, you know, they're, they aren't trying to change they're, they aren't trying to go fight the uphill battle of trying to change the fact that there's so much attrition, but rather they're mastering the model of what to do about the attrition. Is that what you're saying? That was their previous business model. So that's what they were doing um, during the pandemic and then post pandemic. And now they've reached an area where really there's no reason for a worker to go to Amazon and know they have zero future or opportunity there. So they've really kind of pivoted um, to look at how they can better embrace their employee and improve that relationship when there really was no relationship beforehand. Because you just really have, especially on like the warehouse floor, you have a, a great social distancing and the fact that your employees don't often speak to each other because they're in a workspace that is completely isolated. 
Uh, and they found that because of that experience, they're really taking the brunt of the labor shortage and it's costing them a bunch of money. Mm -hmm. So they need to figure out how to create a better relationship there, like in the, the contrast example, Target. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Well, and I think that's a it's a good message for a lot of employers out there, a lot of organizations that are they're struggling is looking at that overall employee experience and and really trying to figure out how to create a, a culture of cohesion and stickiness so people want to stick around. Um, and I think that's probably something that gets lost in this whole post-COVID world where we're a lot of us are still used to doing a lot of work over Zoom or maybe not seeing each other often, if ever. Uh, or we have very limited interaction. So I, I can imagine how that's adding to the difficulty of attrition and, and the great resignation. Um, I also wonder too, you know, I think there's a healthy balance. I mean, I think some attrition is, is good in some cases, especially when you, you look at the typical client we work with where um, they've been using the same systems and processes for decades and now they're trying to make this massive change, but there's the human adoption issue based on the fact that um, there's such highly tenured people around and that sort of thing. So I think some attrition could be healthy for a lot of organizations, especially ones that are sort of stuck in older ways of doing things because you bring in that new way of thinking and uh, that sort of thing. But to your point, you can't go so far as Amazon where there's just no cohesion or no stickiness and people are just um, very short-sighted uh, in their careers. So I think yeah. it's just a good example of why human capital management is so important in the employee experience. Absolutely. They actually... Um committed to no revenue and for the next quarter. And they're actually gonna reinvest that all back in um, human capital management type of um, mm. strategies. So they can, they can better understand what that looks like from their employee experience um, when they really had none of that before. So it just showcases that it may be hurting even you know the restaurants that we go to or the retailers we buy at, but even the tech giants that have really led the way in pioneering automation and technology, they're now having to kind of back up and say, wow, our operations are totally disrupted because of this human component. So kind of bridging the gap between last week and this week, that human, the human component really does affect your overall operation model and should be considered as part of kind of that business process management too. Yeah. Yeah. And then in, in and of itself is also a change for organizations that require, you know, new way of thinking and within your HR departments and within leadership and management. And so it's, it's one thing to say you're going to do that, but to have an organization that's aligned and focused on that is, is a different story. So I think that's another reason why change management is so important just to enable that sort of mind shift related to the, the employee experience. Right. And I know everyone thought we were going to get through this episode not saying change management. We, we just can't do it. It's just not, yeah. what we want, you know, <laughs> the real test will be next week when we, when we talk about technology. Can we yes. do that without talking about change management? Yes. But, Probably but, not. I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. <laughs> yeah, it never happens between the, the two of us. Well, I'm so interested to hear from Wayne. Um, he does such a great job of really giving such a, a general overview of, of what a business process operating model should look like and why it's important to establish before your technology. So I think that's a great segue in kind of talking to him or rolling his clip from um, our previous interview. Yeah, absolutely. And let's do that now. We'll take a, a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to roll a clip from Wayne Holtham talking about target operating model. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control.
If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 46. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. This is the episode uh, part two of our best of 2021 series. Uh, this episode is focused on business process management, business process improvement, operating models, all that good stuff. And the first segment we want to play for you today uh, related to uh, this whole thread of process or the process side of transformation is a segment from episode number 17 of this podcast. We had Wayne Holtham on the show um, talking about target operating models. So we're going to play you a few minutes of this, kind of a highlight from that discussion, just to sort of set the context or sort of unpack that whole concept of target operating model, future state business processes. And again, if you want to hear the whole episode, you can go back to episode number 17 to listen to the full uh, interview, which was about an hour long. So we'll play a few minutes of it here and let's, uh, let's go ahead and roll the, roll the clip here. To start, Wayne, um, maybe just the topic today is is uh, business operating model. Maybe just help us unpack what what is that? What exactly is an operating model, and how does it fit into a, a digital transformation? Well, it's interesting. Operating model there's there's a number of different uh, uh, levels of operating models. So, if I'm a a, a, sort of a a major corporate organization, I'm looking at whether I'm decentralized, I'm centralized, and you know you. Your normal consulting firms will come in and give you some advice on, you know, how you should structure organisation, whether it be globally or whether it be, you know, within a particular region. But the operating model we're talking about today is about how we actually have an how we operate our technology. So, so you know, we buy in a traditional ERP, we'll have the basics of ERP, but then we're actually looking for different modules, and so that helps us drive what our business operating model should look like and then how we can leverage the technology to make that work for us and so that that's that's the probably the the different levels of, that we talk about with operating and then obviously that leads into a number of different impacts to the business when it comes to how we operate so are all our processes right are we you know uh, are we doing are we doing things in a consistent way you know um are there certain impacts that happen to us like we we you know, we might need investment to uh, to do a lot of projects, but we don't actually plan for that investment. So let's put in some um, some uh, an operating model that supports that. So uh, so these are the sort of things to consider. Okay. So if I hear you, if I hear you right, it sounds like an operating model is sort of like business process management or business process improvement. How, or how does it how does it or doesn't it relate to process management or process improvement? How does it all tie together? Well, it influences it, and that's the, that's the key thing. So it's sort of if you've got the overarching, uh, I suppose, platform of the operating model, then the processes that come under that actually um, um, is 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 what drives you as such. So if I'm doing, uh, like I say, investment planning, then I want to be able to have a few processes that inform me where I should invest or how I should invest, what I should invest, and so that drives some of those processes of 
how do I get that information? So I need to be able to get, um, a, you know, a, a, it's almost like a circular process. So I'm going to invest here. How do I invest? How do I deliver? How do I know I've delivered that on time? And so, so that's the sort of operating um, model that we talk about when we talk about that, that capital investment project type thing. Gotcha. Okay. Mm -hmm. And when we think about the operating model and, and business processes in general, how does it fit into an overall transformation? You talked about end-to-end -end processes and how technology can, can help you define that, that future state operating model, but how does it all tie together? Um, or, or how does it, as far as sequencing and timing and all that stuff, how do you integrate this into your uh, digital transformation? Well, the, the operating model is one of those things you should think about at the beginning, because what it will, what it will do is actually say, well, what is the architecture we're actually going to have the functional architecture of the module so so for the for our digital transformation we're going to have a grouping of modules that actually uh, that we, that we'll buy or, or we'll actually look to actually implement and so that then will so those modules will, will then need to be defined on how we're going to uh, have processes that support those modules or leverage those modules and so the first stage is usually identify the the operating model then look at your architecture so so what's what's your bill of materials what's your uh, makeup of your platform going to look like and then obviously the processes that actually drive and leverage that and so that's where process improvement comes in because you know often organizations work in the silo so they work within their particular disciplines what this is trying to drive is that they leverage off each other so if i'm finance i'm a supporter of getting um, better outcomes. So, so planning my investment, planning those sorts of things. Whereas in the past, finance was more of just a transactional. So it helps them become that, that uh, piece of the organization that manages efficiency across the organization, which is a, which is a big process uh, as such. Right. So it, it sounds like uh, from what you're describing that this whole concept of operating model is sort of a centerpiece for any sort of transformation, whether it's a digital transformation or even a just a general business transformation where, you know, it's sort of driven by your operating model, if you do it right, or if you do it the way that you're suggesting, and that sort of leads to other things, you know, you figure out the architecture, as you mentioned, what architecture is best going to support that operating model, what technology, um, what's, how does that affect the organization, the change, the change management or the change impact, um, performance measures, it's, it's sort of touching all those things, isn't it? Oh, exactly right, and it's and it's interesting when you when you actually deliver one of these programs, and I'm I'm two thirds of the way through um, uh, working with an organisation to deliver a program, and you and I didn't come in at the start, so they didn't have an operating model, and so their selection was we're going to get a whole heap of technology, we're going to make it like we had before, and now they've actually got this technology, and they're realising the gap in what they've done is because the operating model doesn't support all of this other functionality, and so they're just they're actually putting themselves backwards because they still have the problem of not being able to manage their capital investment. They still have the problem where people do things differently. So there's 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 nothing that actually guides or over, uh, you know, uh, sits umbrellas the uh, the the digital technology that they've purchased. So they've just bought a whole heap of technology that'll fix it, and it and it doesn't because it's it doesn't bring it together. There's nothing holding the processes or the actual architects. They can't even get out of design. So it's a it's a real, um, you can see the challenge of not having those sorts of steps done at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I know you and I have worked on projects together and independently of one another, even before working together uh, at, on the third stage team. And one of the things that I know we've seen, you know, on, on clients together and 
I suspect you may have seen this in your past too, is that you, you get so enamored by technology oftentimes that the technology becomes the centerpiece instead of the operating model. And so that, you know, that subtle nuance sort of changes the focus. I mean, how, how, how would you just, how would you, uh, what would you say to someone who's saying, well, why would we worry about our operating model? We're just going to go find, you know, SAP or Oracle implement that. And then that'll sort of determine what our operating model is. How, how would you respond to that objection or that thought? Well, it's interesting. I had the same question asked of me yesterday for my client. It's, it's one of those things where it's, it's trying to help them understand where they're, because they have challenges, they have pain points. And so the reason they're putting technology in usually is to overcome those challenges. Um, and, and it's misguided in a sense because the vendors sort of say, well, yeah, technology will fix it all. But, but what, uh, what is quite important to recognise is the reason those pain points are there is because it's more about process and how they operate. Technology is just a component of that. And so when we start talking about how we would address and overcome some of those pain points, um, like lack of, uh, lack of capital um, money, running out of operational uh, expenditure, running out of those sorts of things, you start to tie it back and say, well, you could actually improve what you do just by the way you operate. And, uh, and the technology is only going to support that. It's not going to be the, the complete answer to that. And so, um, so it's an interesting discussion because it's hard to get your head around because many people think operating model, well, I'm centralised, I'm decentralised. As many of the big consulting firms come in and believe that operating model is for you. It's, you know, that, that second level is where, how are we going to operate? Now we've grown, context has changed. Uh, there's disruptors that have happened in our world. Is our operating model still the same as what it, sh what it has been in the past? And that's why you need to consider those things up front uh, because your context has changed. And so technology is only going to either enhance that or cause you some more issues. Right. Yeah, that that makes makes total sense. So on the uh, I, I guess on that along those lines with the, uh, the the does the technology drive the business operating model or does the business does the operating model drive the, the technology? Um, is that true in most cases that, that you see that is best practice? Would you consider that best practice to let to sort of define your operating model first or does it depend on the client or how, how would you determine the right approach there? Your operating model depends on the client and the organization, the type of industry you're in and the type of organization you are. Technology is really only, it should only support it and influence, uh, you know, the, the operating model should influence what technology is and how you use that technology. So to try and put technology first to actually create your operating model. And, and it's, it's interesting that many people talk about best of breed or, or you know, the, uh, leveraging technology best to breed. Well, that just makes me the same as everybody else. And so if I was an organization that uh, wanted to be uh, more competitive, uh, you know, a leader in my market, then, and I was best of breed, then I'm only as good as, as what technology is telling me to be. Whereas the operating model leverages how I can actually be the best I can be within my industry as such. You know, we can, we can do things in certain ways that give us, and I think the American uh, version of that is what they call secret source. It's, it's that competitive advantage that many people are looking to have in a really, really, um, you know, there's, there's, it's a competitive world we're in sort of thing. And so if we don't consider how we operate different than just having technology that is the same as everybody else's, then, then we really, we're not getting any advantage. It's like uh, when we play a sport, you know, everybody, every team within that uh, that particular discipline actually plays a sport, but only a few are premiers or, or win the win the the Super Bowl at the end sort of thing. And so 
how, why is that the case? Is they play the game better. So their operating model is actually more um, more refined than than everybody else because they play by the same rules. You know, the rules are actually, the, you know, no one plays different rules. It's just they learn how to play them better. And I suppose that's the best analogy I find with getting a very good operating model in place is look at the sporting team. You know, there's, there's not a lot of differences that they have apart from players and how you play the game, uh, not necessarily... You know the the rules. That rules is like the technology. That's the bit that's, the, I suppose, the the leveler for everyone. Yeah, that's a that's a great analogy and a, and a really good point that that ties it back to, you know, success and failure rates in the industry. I mean, so many of these transformations fail largely because they're people are doing things out of order. They don't have the right strategy. They don't have the right approach to deploy the technology. It's usually not because the technology doesn't work or the technology is broken. It's usually because we haven't managed this whole concept of, you know, what we want to be when we grow up and letting that dictate how we run our project versus I'm going to go buy SAP, Oracle, Microsoft Dynamics, whatever the product is. And I'm going to defer to that product and let that determine for me what, you know, what processes or best practices are most appropriate for me. And I think that that difference oftentimes can separate, you know, in your analogy, the winners versus the losers in transformation, success versus failure. Uh, yeah, exactly right, and 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 it's it's one of those things when you see organisations that are really understanding of of uh, an operating model or their their place in their industry, you see the success they have and the way they actually approach things. When you look at organisations that think, ah, I'll get this the silver bullet or the magic pill or whatever, which is technology, and and they get lost in it because what vendors sell people isn't actually. The, the complete picture because technology is only a component. It's a feeder. If you don't have processes, if you don't have understanding of how you actually are going to use those processes, if you don't have architecture that actually supports that, then you've really just got technology. That's it, which is, which you know, is uh, it can be limiting in, in the way you use it. All right. That's good stuff. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed that uh, clip from uh, Wayne. And again, you can find that complete interview on episode number 17 of this podcast. So be sure to go check that out. There's another another 45 minutes or so that we did not cover in that clip. Uh, if you want to unpack that, that thread a little bit more, it's actually a very good conversation and he has a lot of really good stuff to say. It's hard to, it's hard to just play you a, a 12 minute clip when he had so much good stuff in that, that hour long interview, but those are some of the highlights there. So, uh, so much good stuff within that 12 minutes though, that we're going to, uh, sort of unpack a bit of it uh, here in just a minute. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 46. Uh, you can find new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube and all the audio podcast platforms like Amazon, Spotify, Apple, etc. 
And uh, so we just had this clip, Kyler, with Wayne talking about target operating model, um, business pot, business process management, future state processes, all that stuff. What, what were some of your observations or thoughts from, from hearing that clip? Yeah, I, I love how Wayne really um, kind of drives home the importance of cross-functional collaboration. I guess when I, I thought about establishing a business operating model, I would assume that was really just the operations team and how he took us through kind of, it's so important to include finance and sales and all of these different pieces to not only make sure that your, your operating model is most efficient, but that's a laying the groundwork to, to um, selecting the best technology. So I think that's something that a lot of times, I don't know about you, but people don't really understand is that you do need that cross collaboration before you engage any sort of technology. Yeah, yeah, you do. Instead of waiting for the technology to enable the cross collaboration, it's it should be the reverse. You need to figure out organizationally how you're gonna get that cross collaboration and what the processes behind it are gonna look like. And then you can overlay the technology on it that much easier. Um, part of the reasons why so many of these projects take so long and go so far over budget is because organizations don't do that. They they mm-hmm. sort of try to do it in flight while they're trying to implement new technology. They realize, oh, we should probably figure out how we're going to collaborate or how we're going to use this technology. And so they end up spinning their wheels and spending a lot of time and money when where they don't need to necessarily on the implementation of technology itself. Yeah. And it sounds like based off Wayne's case study, that that's kind of a main theme that you come in, third stage comes in. And people say like, well, the technology is not fitting and he's working with that client now where you're saying, well, actually you don't even know or you don't have anything to fit to (laughs) yet. Um, So it sounds like that's a a pretty real reality um, within your, your um, scope with your clients. Yeah, it is. And and we, when we do that, we have to sort of counter the messaging from software vendors and system integrators, which is, well, don't worry about what the future state's going to look like. Just use our best practices. Mm-hmm. And on the surface, it's like, okay, that sounds, that sounds pretty good. I like that. You know, you could just tell me how to run my business and how my organization's going to look. But once you really get into it, you find that first of all, best practices are a myth. There is no such thing as best practices, partly because um, it's an overstatement from software vendors, but also because there, there can't be anything. If you think about it in a lot of processes, there can't be best practice because if every company looked the same, there, there wouldn't be any competitive advantage. You wouldn't have any unique differentiators. So it's, it's very um, superficial, I'd say, to say that you can just put in new technology and that's going to give you best practice. So you have to define that for yourself from an operating model perspective and organizational roles and responsibility. And ultimately that's going to help with ding, 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 change management. So we're going <laughs> to use, use that word again in our non-technology, non-change management related episode. <laughs> That's such an excellent point though, that you, that you just made. Like, so when you, when a vendor does come in and say like, I know all of these best practices, it's almost like, you're like, well, they're, they're, that's not my best practice, you know? So it really is unique to the organization. I know I recently um, did a case study with one of our other directors here at third stage. And he had talked about how uh, a smaller company, a small to mid-sized business had wanted their team to write a business case. And for him, he's like, we're not your business. Like we can definitely help you write a business case, but almost like, you know, you have to decide who you want to be, what your operating model wants to achieve before we can help you kind of implement a lot of technology. So it seems like a lot of times at third stage, our clients come in running and we're kind of like, 
let's slow it down, you know, and, and right. kind of kumbaya, let's, let's decide what we're going to do before we get down the road of choosing a technology and then spending a bunch of additional money to fix all of those broken processes that we didn't review in the beginning. Yeah, it sort of gives you that clear blueprint for how you're going to build the organization. It's a lot like, you know, I think for most of us, we can, most of us can agree that if we're going to build a house, we're not just going to, you know, expect someone to drop off a pile of lumber and cement and building materials in our front lawn. We're just going to start building you. It's pretty rational. And most people would agree that, no, you need a blueprint. You need to know what it's all going to look like. And it'd be like a general contractor saying, well, you can skip the architect. You don't need the architect. We have best practice for how to build a house. Well, what's it going to look like? I, I don't know. We'll just do it the way we did it for the last house. No one's going to buy a house. No one's going to agree to that. So, but yet corporations and large organizations all over the world are making that exact same decision, that wrong decision for their multi-billion dollars in some cases, multi-billion dollar organizations, but they would never do that for their their home or, you know, lower value stuff in life. So yeah. it's, really, it's a fascinating dynamic, but I think it's because organizations don't understand that, that nuance. Well, good. Well, I hope our audience does go back to listen to Wayne's full clip because it does such a great job, kind of just a baseline of what is a business operating model and how do you make sure within your digital transformation that you establish that within the correct area to save your time, money, resources, and just make sure that it's the it's most efficient. And I know John is actually going to talk a little bit more um, about kind of the vendor side of operations and what they can do because you know he's kind of a disruptor like you are in the industry, yeah. um, and he just doesn't you know he doesn't take any of that. <laughs> yeah, he's he's a cynic for sure, um, and he's you know he and I have followed each other for a long time for over ten years, probably more like fifteen year, years now. So. Uh, it's, it's been interesting to sort of grow up in the space with him, um, and I respect him a lot. So we'll get to that in a second. And by the way, that I, I just to echo what you said about Wayne's interview from episode number 17. I learn a ton mm-hmm. anytime anytime you see Wayne Holtham on our show, which is why he's been on here so many times. I, I learn a ton, and I always like having guests on the show that I'm going to learn from, you're going to learn from. And uh, if we learn, you figure the rest of the audience is probably going to learn something too. So um so yeah, be sure to check that out. And, and we are going to shift gears now and get to Jonathan Reed from Diginomica. Uh, this is going back to episode number 21. We're going to talk about some of the uh, keys to digital transformation success, including stuff related to business process. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll come back and do that clip here in just a second. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com.
Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 46. You're listening to the best of 2021 series. This episode is focused on the business process side of transformation. And uh, just as a reminder, you can find new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, as well as all of the usual audio platforms uh, for podcasts like Google, Spotify, Amazon, Pandora, all that good stuff. You can also find us uh, live every Wednesday on LinkedIn as well. Um, so I'm excited for our, our next guest, uh, Jonathan Reed. We're going to play a clip from an interview we had with him uh, back in the episode number 21. And Jonathan Reed is a, I'd call him a industry influencer, writer, uh, thought leader. Uh, I'm not sure what the right label is or if we need to give him a label, but that's sort of what he does is uh, everything related to thought leadership. And, and he's very opinionated, which is why I like him. He doesn't hold back. He is probably even more direct than I am, uh, and it, which is interesting because a lot of you know, whereas we're totally independent as a company third stage, uh, his organization, Diginomica, actually works very closely with the vendor community. So I find it very fascinating that he's able to walk that fine line of keeping vendors happy and having vendors, you know, pay for sponsorships and things through his uh, website, which is called Diginomica, by the way. Um, but yet he's still able to sort of retain that, uh, uh, call it that, that honest view of the world. And uh, if you haven't checked out the website, it's diginomica.com. You spell it D-I-G-I-N-O-M-I-C-A. It's a really good website where they sort of, uh, it's non-traditional, I'd say. The writing is very hard-hitting, and it's not like your usual digital transformation boring stuff. Not that any of this is boring, of course, but uh, people might get bored by some stuff written about technology, whereas their stuff is not. It's very entertaining and funny at times. His, his articles are, are humorous, but informative at the same time. So he was on the show back in episode 21. We had a great conversation talking about some of the common themes and trends uh, and keys to success for digital transformation. And he was really focusing on sort of the things that are uh, important to success, but overlooked, you know, most commonly overlooked. So that's sort of the theme of the overall conversation. So we're going to play a clip from that. Um, and so let's go ahead and roll that clip right now. What about um, maybe let, let me go the opposite direction of what I just asked you talk about what are those trends or buzzwords that you think right now are, are the most overhyped or that an enterprise technology buyer should be the most leery of? I know you mentioned blockchain a little bit, but what, what are some of your thoughts there? Uh, well, I mean, a lot of these buzzwords do represent topics that are worth reckoning with. It's just you have to be wary about immediately opening up your wallet and feeling like you can't be successful without it. Um, one that gets a lot of debate right now is customer data platforms. That's huge on the, on the CX side. Um, and so the question then becomes like, is this new and different than the, than the data integration activities we've undertaken in the past? Um, you know, and, and so you need to really take a hard look at that and we'll, Will we get a better result like, um, you know, integrating all your customer data sounds wonderful, but then think about, well, what about our finance data and what about the rest of our corporate data that we may need visibility into our supply chain data? How can you serve customers if you don't have visibility into your supply chain? So these 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 acronyms like CDP, you have to be really, really careful when, a ven when vendors start glomming onto that because they're doing it partially because they're going to sell, sell a bunch of stuff to you. Um, you know, I think we have to be really careful with AI. Um, there's all kinds of problems with AI. Um, a lot of AI tools ship uh, in problematic ways that perhaps include um, biases. We see that a ton in HR. You do a search on AR, AI 
recruitment controversy and you'll find all kinds of stuff around companies that tried AI tools for recruiting and found that they were actually screening qualified applicants or not including diverse applicants for various reasons. So there's there's always an underbelly to these technologies. It doesn't mean that they're bad. It just means they deserve a, a close, uh, close look. So I, I don't know that I would say any of them I mean, blockchain is a little bit of a special case because it was so hyped when there were just no use cases. And I'm still waiting to do my first live production scale enterprise blockchain story. <laughs> I keep right. telling vendors, like, please send me your, your, your live production story. Nope. But we've got this great POC, which is proof of concept. Um, well, we've been doing POCs in blockchain now for five or six years. Um, and so that, you know, that's, that's obviously technology that I get a little particularly wary of just because, you know, the, the use cases aren't there yet. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to look at it. I think, uh, I agree with you, by the way, I think there's so many cool technologies out there and blockchain is one of them, but you, you have to take it all with a grain of salt and recognize that even if you do commit to a certain technology, whether it's a, a type of technology or even a certain vendor or, or a certain specific, uh, software solution there's always an underbelly to it, like you said. And I think that's true for any, any solution out there for sure. Um, we're getting a few comments or questions here um, from the audience. So maybe I'll jump in here. Uh, first is a comment that it's worth noting here. And you alluded to this a minute ago, John, but um, Greg mentions here that John owns cloud ERP Friday afternoons here on LinkedIn. <laughs> so, so we'll plug for your, you have a show that you do. on. Oh on yeah. LinkedIn. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's usually at four Eastern though. I'm probably not going to do it today because I wanted to, focus on this show so but but yeah usually fridays at 4 4 30 have kind of a blowout it's not always about cloud erp though i do a fair amount of cx stuff mostly i just interview independent thinkers in the enterprise and see where the conversations go it's it's not unlike this format so very cool okay well yeah we'll be sure to check that out uh, for the audience there um another comment that uh, uh i've dropped a few comments on Dig diginomica over the years all taken in good stride so another another fan of your publication there or your your outlet there uh, yeah here's a question what are the what are the api integration best practices for before during or after implementation provided that the client has a quite a few best of breed systems so that's a very specific question we're, we're, we're jumping right in here going going to go straight into wow. the weeds with the api integration <laughs> i don't know if that's uh I'm glad you brought. The, I'm glad you raised that. And what's one interesting thing, just by the way, is I was going to say another buzzword. I'm very wary of is multi-cloud, and and I was just discussing this the other day and how I like the idea of multi-cloud environments, but the problem becomes that um, that the tools to allow customers to easily move workloads between clouds just haven't delivered on the multi-cloud promise. So that's one I'm I would advise being very wary of as a term. But the idea of like avoiding lock-in is always a really good discussion to have. As far as APIs are concerned, I mean, the the, the thing about a APIs is that they are a step forward from classic point-to-point -point integration. But um, you do need to be conversing with the vendors that are responsible providing, for providing those APIs and understanding what the impact of it is is and also your technology team not all apis are created equal some of them are more robust and have more business content and are more readily usable others will get you into trouble if you don't have certain standard configurations and i know you cover this a lot in your blog but if you get over customized even and you can do this even with cloud software sometimes it can affect those api integrations going forward one of the biggest things you need to you need to ask about with with the vendors around apis is you know 
what is the testing going to look like with these APIs going forward? Could they break? If so, how? And and because just because an API works today doesn't mean it's going to work three months from now when a, when a number of vendors have up, updated their software or a year from now, likewise. So I think the biggest thing about APIs is to realize that they're not some magic solution. And in fact, like I believe that if certain vendors work very closely together on a lot of projects that they need to go need to go beyond APIs and provide a, a deeper level of, of of sophisticated integration. One one good example of that would be Salesforce, just because they are a partner of ours. So take it for what that's worth. But but so many so many customers want to integrate whatever they're doing with Salesforce, especially like in the ERP space or whatever. Um, so I think it's very important to ask about what kind of dedicated integration you have and what the relationships are between those vendors. Do those vendors talk to each other at all around their API strategies and their integration strategies? So, I mean, I'm not, I've never been on an API project, so you have to take that with a grain of salt, but those are the kinds of questions I'd be asking. I don't know if you have anything to add to that. Yeah, I, no, I, I think it's absolutely true. And especially in today's day and age where I think that whole best of breed concept is becoming more acceptable and more common. You know, 10, 20 years ago, it was almost a bad word to say, you know, I'm going to have two or three or four different systems and time all together. But now the, the tools are generally flexible enough and the architectures are open enough that you can you can do that more realistically. But, you know, you still have to make sure it, it's all going to work together and that you've clearly defined your data strategy and you, you understand where the data is going to reside and how you're going to manage that master data, where you're going to manage it. So there's just a lot of variables that need to be addressed, but not to say you shouldn't do it. It's just a Back to the point of the underbelly or the risks, you know, you've got to you've got to be able to manage those pieces. Beware well. of seamless integration, folks. Yes, seamless yeah. integration—that is one of the phrases that always scares me. Yeah, and it, you know, I it, I had a call with a client this morning actually, who is uh, a customer of, of SAP S4 HANA, a space that I know you know uh, very well as well, and, and, and we both have histories with. Uh, being in the SAP world early in our careers or earlier in our careers. Um, but they, he had talked about how um, with SAP, it's actually easier in his opinion, it's easier to integrate non SAP products than it is to integrate SAP's own products to each other, which I thought was super interesting comment. Ouch. Yeah. So I thought, well, that that's because you would assume, you know, if I'm buying a bunch of stuff from one vendor, it's going to seamlessly integrate. Right. I mean, it makes sense. You, you would think, but then you get into the reality of it and it doesn't quite work that way. Well, right. Uh, we could have a discussion about acquired pro products and how that changes that. But yes, with the Reba and Concur and all the acquisitions they've they've done in particular. So, Eric, I wanted to mention to you, uh, you're you're kind of guiding our question flow, so you can decide where you want to take this. But I did prepare some unique content for your audience in your show. What I did, yes. I you write a lot about project success and how to achieve it. And so, what I did is I came up with my underrated keys to project success. That, that I believe don't get enough airtime. And yes. I thought you might enjoy hearing them uh, because it might clash with some of yours and be kind of fun. So I prepared, I think, about eight of them. I don't have an exact count because some of them are kind of related to each other. But anyway, yeah, I got that's them. Great. So and whenever you want to hit them, I've got them for you. Let's let's jump so, into it because I think that'll stimulate. And, and I'm excited too because I have no idea what's on your list, which is great. You do and not. Then, uh, and I want to hear what uh, the audience has to say too. So I'll kind of watch, you know, I think it'll probably stimulate uh, more questions and comments. So yeah, please fire away your, your top eight or 10 or however many it is uh, cool. underrated keys to, to success. Yeah. Well, well, let me preface this by just quickly saying that 
a lot of the keys to project success you read about on Eric's blog, for example, are, are pretty, I don't want to say they're, they're mundane, but they're not sexy, but they're just, they just are true. Things like executive buy-in, uh, change management is a theme that you hit all the time. That's obviously a, a given training. For example, companies continue to uh, chronically underinvest in, in training. Um, and, and when you look at why products fall short, it's often like a real key to why, why they did. And so there are things like that, that are, that are there, um, that, that I'm not going to mention today just because, they're obvious they're important though but but they're just not that much fun to talk about because <laughs> we keep talking about them right. um, but there but then there the, there's some newer ones that are kind of important that I'm not going to get into as well but they have to do with the fact that a lot of these multi-year products now you could have a multi-year transformation project but it I don't believe you're going to see it through unless you have so-called quick wins so one of the big jobs of today's products is figuring out what those quicker wins are going to look like that that has to be put into place as part of this, um, and 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 then, but the quick wins have to tie into an overall platform strategy. So, in other words, the other mistake companies have made, and this I've seen it in the pandemic as well, is roll out an app quickly to customers because you need to have a direct to customer app, but you didn't think about what happens when I build ten more apps, like, and I have ten of them. They need to be really on the same platform and be sharing the same design characteristics probably. But did you think through that? And with data platforms, it's the same because more and more this is about information and data and not just transactional systems. So you have to have a data platform strategy as well. But I think a lot of that is all like understood. I'm not going to sit here and say it's easy. I think that's understood. The other one I think that's understood is that you have to be able to know how you're going to measure your your success. And so I think more and more attention is being paid and, and rightly so to what are the metrics by which we judge these outcomes. And the metrics need to be much more business oriented than they were in the past. So not just, oh, we got off of these legacy systems and now we're processing more transactions per second. Who cares? Are you getting closer to your customer? Are you getting closer to your suppliers? All that kind of stuff. So, so that's all sort of the understood stuff. So let me get to the stuff that I think is like more um, underrated stuff. Um, sure. I believe a lot of this comes down to the what I call the paradox of customer ownership, which is that successful projects require more customer ownership over the outcome of those projects and less what I would call sort of trust in the SI. I was going to say blind faith, but that's not entirely fair, but less trust in the SI. A lot of times the, the, the external partners get in there um, because they've been in there for a long time and they've built the relationships up and it's kind of a given. And I kind of reject that. I think you need to step back from that a little bit. Um, software selection is rarely the reason a pro pro project goes wrong, but you do have to choose the right software. Um, yeah. But, but, but the thing I would say, the first underrated key is picking the right partner. And, and, and that has an industry component to me. So you need someone who understands your industry. And, and that's why the generic SI thing I'm skeptical of because a lot of times I think the, the best SI or partner for your project may not be a large SI. Maybe it is, but it's got to be people that understand your industry and, and can speak to you about what other customers in your industry are doing, how they're winning, where they're going wrong. If they can't have that conversation with you, I don't care how well they know your software, they won't be able to help you. The, these, these generic software categories like ERP and CRM, they are not going to be generic categories in five years. I can mm -hmm. tell you, even in the CRM world, they're talking about industry now and, and how do we create customer 
uh, management customer experience applications that fit a particular industry situation. So you need partners that understand your industry. So that's, that's, that's my top key. Right. It's a good one. Do you want to comment on that before I move into a few others or? No, I just think, I think it's a great point. I mean, I think too many companies get enamored by a name, you know, it's Accenture, it's Deloitte, it's IBM, whoever. Um, and I, I, the saying that drives me crazy is no one ever got fired for hiring IBM or Accenture or Deloitte, except I can name a ton of people that have been fired for hiring one of them. <laughs> that's, that's the caveat. Yeah. To that. or, and, and wound up in, in court, like in, in various lawsuits that you've served as an expert witness on as well. And, and look, yeah. there are some great um, teams and larger SIs as well. So I'm not just going to sit here and trash that. It's yeah. more, but I think you have to look more experienced than the name. And, and make sure that that those you engage with are the ones who are actually going to be seeing your project through and 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 on the ground with you quote unquote even if they're not on the ground per se they may not be on the ground but you know what I mean um my no next one I just yeah, add, no, yeah, matter, yeah. no matter who it is uh, even if it's a great fit whoever whether it's a big si or not you still have to manage those consultants I mean it's your project and you still have to own it so I think that's the other thing too is don't assume that just because you found the right one, that now your your work here is done. They're going to take it from here. You still have to work very closely with them and collaborate and have the right controls in place and all that stuff. So, all right, good stuff. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back and play you the rest of this uh, short clip from Jonathan in the interview we had with him. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 46. Thanks for joining here today. We're in the midst of a clip from Jonathan Reed from Diginomica talking about keys to transformation success, uh, particularly uh, talking about some themes related to business process. Let's jump right back into the clip. My next one is I look for I look for signs of struggle in the customer partner relationship. And by that, I mean, I, I, I want to, when I do interviews and such, I want to hear about the hard times. I don't care mm -hmm. what project you have. If you didn't have a hard time in a moment of truth or two on that project, I don't buy your success. And and I'm looking for partners that are not perfect and have these perfect rosy stories. I'm looking for stories of how we had a gut punch and how we came together and overcame it. That's what I want to hear about. And I don't hear enough of those stories, but that's what I look for. And And when I see really successful projects, that's what I see is I see a relationship between the the customer, the vendor, the partner that have all been tested and they've seen it through. And that's what I'm looking for. Yeah, that's a great one. And it gets back to the point of every, every decision, whether it's a, which consulting partner, which vendor or which product you use or whatever it may be, there's always a dark side to it, or there's always some sort of risk or some sort of, uh, uh, not a failure point, but mistake, you know, like in the case of consultants, where have they made mistakes, where have the challenge has been with the project and, if you're not picking up on that, then you're missing something because it, it's there. 
you just have to understand what they are. Bingo. And and a lot of the rest of mine kind of fall into a general category, which is that I have a lot more confidence and hear a lot more good things with customers that, that the way I put it is they come up for air more often. So in other words, they're not heads down all the time focused on themselves. They have context. They have context to what their peers are doing. They have context to what the industry are doing. They enjoy debating trends with, with analysts and bloggers and people like yourself. Um, so there are different components to that. I look for, for example, it's a cultural thing, right? In the sense that there are some companies that really don't encourage or provide budget for their employees to do these things. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I think a lot of them are ultimately self-defeating. Some of the reasons are, oh my gosh, like if, if we give our employees all these networking and immersion opportunities and send them to conferences and stuff, they'll meet other employers and they'll get hired away from us. And so like, let's, let's be insular, um, but it always fails in the end. And, and so I look for things like active user group involvement. Um, I look for people who are always out there networking on LinkedIn and elsewhere, asking questions in product forums, getting information. Um, that kind of stuff is so invaluable. When I see customers talking together at trade shows and swapping war stories, I sit here and say, gosh, every minute of this is worth thousands of dollars of consulting time. What they're bringing home to their team from these conversations gives them such huge perspective. So many of the problems that we run into on projects are because we're not getting regular infusions of good information that, that make us all more, uh, you know, understanding of what is really happening and how to get a good result. So a lot of things fall into that category. Um, and, and I'll add another one to it, but I'll see if you have a comment on that. Yeah, I, I think it's a great point. I mean, I, as a consultant, and it's easy to think that, you know, people are just going to want to come to you to get the answers and, and get the advice. But I think, you know, when we do our events, like our live events or virtual events, um, it, it's just as I think there's just as much value to people attending those getting uh, information from each other and just learning from each other's mistakes and war stories as it is hearing it from a consultant. And I think in some ways, a lot of ways, actually, your peers are going to be a lot more credible because they're you can relate to them better than you could a consultant who's an outsider, you know, looking in. But if you're dealing with a peer who's sitting in your exact same seat and they've made some mistakes, maybe they've done some things right that you can learn from that's that's pretty invaluable and it's it uh that tends to stick just as well if not better sometimes than consulting advice so I, I totally agree with you on that the next one's a really big one for me and i have a whole series on digonomica i've written about this i think i you might i think i might even have a piece about you in this series i'll have to check um i'll check it out but it's it's the importance of independent advisors and in, in project results and independent advisors can fit all kinds of different flavors um, but but what it comes down to is that whoever you select for your prime partner should have some level of accountability at various points. That could be independent subject matter experts who come in on a consulting basis. It could be people who participate in software evaluation. It could be people who do software audits and maturity checks. There's all kinds of flavors of, of, of independence, and it's very, very important to integrate their voices into what it is you do. And there are objections to this that I hear, and the biggest one is, oh, well, that's a political minefield, and it makes things so much more complicated, and the, the main prime vendor is threatened by this, and it will, you know, perhaps all of those things are true, but you still have to do it because mm -hmm. 
otherwise you're putting too much stock in one vested interest or two to make sure that this goes a certain way. And you, you can't afford that. These products are too important. So sorry, but you have to learn how to manage the politics of it. Yeah. And I would almost argue, is it really politics or is it that you're call you have a party there that's calling out the elephant in the room, which is there's a problem or here's a risk and we need to deal with it versus no, 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 let's just shove that under the rug and not deal with it. So you could call that political, but in my view, it's like, yeah, it's sort of politics. It does get into some politics, but I think it's because it's, it's somewhat of a threat sometimes to the SI. I know for us, a lot of times, I know a lot of system integrators don't want us involved. Um, and, and it's not because we don't know what we're doing. Exactly. It's because we, we create a level of accountability and we expose risks and, and that's what you should do anyway. Not because you want to point fingers or assign blame. It's not about that. It's just these projects are messy. And if you're not feeling like it's messy, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> you know, you're, you're missing something if you don't get into the messiness of it. So you might as well just draw the messiness out, tackle it, deal with it, clean it up as you're going rather than brushing it under the rug. And then post go live, you know, you find that you can't function your business because you didn't deal with any of these things. Yeah, absolutely. And, and look, I mean, in, in good, healthy product environments, it shouldn't be politics because your your partners should welcome that. And that should be part of when you select a partner, you should be very upfront with them that even though we're going to really put our trust in you for this project, we're going to have other people involved that are going to provide input in various points. And, you know, a, a good project environment, people welcome that kind of openness and, and, and appreciate like the informed judgment of experts because the independents that come in are not coming in like to screw up your project they're coming in to provide valuable perspective and so ideally right. to your point those politics shouldn't be there but i just wanted to acknowledge it because i do want to acknowledge that i do think it does require a little more finesse to manage but i think the payoff is just so huge if you can figure out how to do it so yeah and and the other thing too is you know you were talking about um i can't remember if it's before or after we started the live stream and we were talking a little bit before we went live uh, but at one point here today, we were talking about how um, uh, people need to sort of take control back uh, from their uh, of their project and not necessarily um, just view it as an IT project. We're sort of talking about that whole technology versus business mm -hmm. piece of it. And when you have an independent advisor, you, well, let me back up. When you have a, a software vendor, a big SI that's managing everything and you have no other counter opinions in there, you're going to view everything or they're going to view everything as sort of a technology first. Like if I'm an SAP integrator, let's figure out how SAP is going to fit in here. Well, there's a lot of places yep. where SAP doesn't belong there. I mean, you can still be using SAP, but you don't need to be using it for everything. You don't need to buy every single module out there or exactly. you know, deploy it to the organization. So those are the types of decisions that happen throughout an implementation that, to your point, might be perceived as political, but it's, I think, just asking good questions and challenging you know, the status quo in a, in a good way that's going to help you longer term. Good stuff. That was a really good conversation. And again, that's only part of the conversation. You can listen to the entire interview back at episode number 21 of this podcast. Uh, so much good stuff to unpack here. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about some of the lessons and, and debriefings from that discussion. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. 
If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 46. My name is Eric Kimberling with Kyler Tiedem. And we just had this discussion with Jonathan Reed from Diginomica talking about uh, enterprise uh, technology, keys to success, and um, some. Of, we also talked about some general trends in that larger discussion that you can find back in episode number 21. But what, some, what were some of your thoughts or uh, takeaways from that clip that we just played? Yeah, Jonathan's so great. He's, you know, a straight shooter, which I um, so appreciate, even though he did say he does not like buzzwords, which obviously, you know, we are friends <laughs> there. But um, I think his reasoning behind that, specifically when we're talking about the, the process side, is just the need to define what you're actually talking about. So a lot of times executives will come in and say like, hey, we're going through this digital transformation and everyone will be like, what does that mean? And the importance of really defining that and putting it in in the power in the, the power in the hands of the users was the phrase he used, um, and I thought that that really resonated because it it is so important to have that ownership over your processes without being influenced by a vendor, kind of like what we were talking about um, earlier. Um, so that was one thing you know I I definitely feel is so important um, when it comes to the overall success on the process side for sure. Yeah, yeah, it seems like, um, you know, just getting into a bigger theme or a bigger picture point is that it seems like vendors and system integrators have it um, outsized, is that a word, outsized? Uh, they have too much influence over how people should be running their businesses, and they don't necessarily know how you should be running your business. They know how to build technology and how to deploy technology, but they don't know how you should run your business. I think it's, a, it's an important point that is it's a common pitfall for a lot of organizations. Yeah, and something it was similar to what Wayne was saying, and then I, you know, it really triggered me because every every digital transformation I've been through in my career is really kind of run by IT, and they are always like the end all say all, um, you know, to say like, oh no, there's no way we can do that, or that's not possible. We have to do it this way, and he he totally goes against that by saying, you know, it should not be an IT project, it should involve all different stakeholders and there should be no politics involved, not only internally, but also with your external partners and the importance of that transparent communication when it comes to processes and saying to them, there will be other people involved in this. And I think a lot of people don't know that they really have the power to say like, hello, software vendor, there will be other people involved in this and we will do it this way. And a lot of times I don't think that that sometimes is is known that you really can have that ownership. They they really do work for you type of thing. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of like the tails wagging the dog in some cases, yeah. and you, you just need to make sure you've got your clear vision because it's you know the other thing too is that that happens is not only as we were talking about earlier in the show, not only are you going to spend a lot more time and money on your implementation if you haven't clearly laid out what you want your processes to be and what you want to be when you grow up before you start implementing technology. Not only is that going to happen, but you're also going to end up in a situation where you're going to be disappointed with what you end up with. It's, it's, there's going to be a disconnect or um, I'm having trouble with words today. Uh, a, a disconnect or a, a disconnect. Uh, in your... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
just me, the brain's not firing on all cylinders today, apparently. You've got some siloed data up there. <laughs> right. It's very siloed right now. I'm, I'm having trouble <laughs> accessing the silo I need right now. Um, but there are, uh, but it gets to the point where it becomes more of your, you're beholden to what the technology can do or what the vendors think you should be doing versus having that clear vision. If you don't have the clear vision of what you want your future state to look like, in the absence of that, you're going to end up defaulting to either paving the cow paths and just automating what you've always done, or which could be even worse is you right. might just defer to the software vendor and just do it the way they think you should be running your business. And neither one is ideal by any means. Yeah. I, I can't believe that Jonathan's never really got into consulting because I could just see him, you know, getting in there and being like, absolutely not. And, you know, being the client behind him, like, yeah, absolutely not, you know, type of thing. Um, he's, yeah. he's very, he's very surface level when it comes to what is going to make you successful. And so honest when it comes to, if you do kind of engage in processes that you might be pushed into on somebody else's timeline and don't create that ownership over your business from not only a process standpoint, but also a, a, an overarching strategy, like you just mentioned, you will be pushed into something that's not going to be as effect, effective or achieve the results that you're really looking for with your product. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's all about, I mean, there's so many variables to think about. You've got to think about, you know, what the future state is going to be and what the implementation time and cost is going to be. Uh, what things are going to look like after go live, how you're going to optimize benefits, how you're going to minimize operational disruption at the time you go live. I mean, those are all risks and things that have to be thought through. And oftentimes they're not well thought through. Yeah. And, and what the level of technology integration is within your organization. Like, are, are you an early adopting organization or do you have just an overall culture that isn't used to automation processes and how he was talking about, you know, just kind of considering what that looks like with your specific DNA as an organization. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Very true. Yeah. Well, he does such a great job and I hope everyone does listen to his interview. I think it's time to have him back on at some point. Um, I think it would be fun to do like a whole vendor biases segment with him because that would be super fun. <laughs> oh, and he, he, I'm sure he has a lot of them. He shared some with me, but I'm sure he has a whole. Yeah. A uh, series of stuff that I don't even know about that you could oh, share. Yeah. And I picked up bits and pieces from reading his stuff, but that would be a, a good conversation. Yeah. Um, and so, again, you can check out that full episode, episode number 21 of Transformation Ground Control. Go check that out if you like what you heard in that last clip. Uh, he's got a lot more good stuff. And it's just a, it's always interesting to have industry peers on here that are not necessarily vendors, but they're independent like us and they're, you know, thought leaders in the space. It's always good to get a different perspective like that. So that was good. Um, well, good. Well, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to bring on our final guest, uh, who is uh, Wayne Kavanaugh from Ninja Nation, which is a high growth um, services company that I'll describe here in a moment. But he's going to be on here. We're going to play a clip talking about how to change your business model as part of a transformation. So it's focused on process, but it's also just the overall uh, business model as well. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, 
Our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 46. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, as well as all the audio podcast platforms like Amazon, uh, Pandora, Google, uh, Apple, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, look for us every Wednesday with new episodes there. And be sure to subscribe to us on social media as well. If you're uh, on Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, any of those, be sure to follow, follow us on social media. We put out new content daily related to digital transformation best practices. So I'm excited for our next guest or the clip from this next guest uh, who is with us back on episode number 30. And this is Wayne Cavanaugh. He's the CEO and founder of a company called Ninja Nation, which is a, a North American company that um, actually does uh, sort of ninja warrior uh, types of events. So birthday parties and stuff focused on kids, although I think they also do adult stuff too. Um, so it's a very much a, what I guess you call it a recreational uh, facility uh, service and uh, retail. There's a retail component as well. Um, so he's on. He was on the show to talk about just growing a business and going from zero to high growth and scaling from multiple locations and how he has had to adjust his business model at Nigination to enable and, and uh, support that that growth. So let's go ahead and play this clip. Uh, this is again from episode number thirty. This is Wayne Cavanaugh from Nigination. As you know. Uh, especially in your world, it's all about pivoting. And so the team focuses on pivoting. It's not, you can't put your head in the sand, right? You got to just get out there, roll up your sleeves and figure it out. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's a, a interesting story because uh, I remember you and I talking just on a personal basis around that time. And um, it, it was a scary time for all of us, you know, especially those, those of us that own businesses and Yours in particular seem like, you know, could be at risk, but you guys found a way to, to navigate that sort of pivot, change the business model. And uh, is that when you started getting into more, you started pushing the, to the franchising or the franchising really took off was post COVID or had you already been doing that? Yeah. Po- so we had started it maybe uh, two months pre COVID. So beginning of 2020 and um, we, we quickly put it by the wayside. I mean, our focus was taking care of our employees um helping our our team members uh through this crazy covid world um you know focus on the the participants and consumers we had at the time what services we could offer and um you know for for us franchising is building partnerships right it's it's finding terrific people that are passionate about what we what we do we want to be able to showcase that have operations that make sense um prove to ourselves that our team could pivot the way we needed to pivot and then um, bring in those partners at that time when our heads were clear because it's a two-way street and it's a, it's a permanent relationship. And so we need to have clear heads, kind of clear operational, you know, pathway through COVID. And then once we got that done, we turned the, the franchise engine back on. Nice. So in addition to uh, COVID, 
what other challenges have you faced or what have some of the biggest challenges been that you faced while while scaling up and growing on Ninja Nation? You know, we've been very fortunate in a number of areas. Um, you know, the market level of interest in what we do um, was probably the biggest challenge early on. You know, when, when I remember walking into the uh, first set of meetings with landlords uh, that were renting out spaces, and I said, I want to do this ninja sport concept and build it. And they, you know, you almost get laughed out of the room. And so uh, the same thing with parents, right? So the, the great part about the systems we created at Ninja Nation, the service offerings we have really introduce parents and kids through birthday parties. So if you think about Colton having a birthday party, they invite 14 friends that may have never heard of the sport of Ninja. Um, they have a mind blowing experience. It's super fun. They have a great birthday party, but then they find out, Hey, you do classes and you do competitions and there's a community around this and there's Ninja moms and Ninja dads and people are really into this and you can make this your sport. And so I would say that we, we call it driving access to the sport and awareness of the sport and being a leader in that has, has been a, been a blast. Cause you see a lot of eye-opening experiences. You see kids' lives being changed, their confidence grow. Um, moms and dads happy because they, their kids are getting a great workout. They're away from TV screens. They're away from their iPhones. Um, and the kids don't realize they're getting a workout. They're just having fun. Um, so I think generating an understanding that we're not, there's nothing wrong with trampoline parks, a great place to go have fun, but people mentally want to categorize you into some category. Are you a gymnastics facility? Are you a trampoline park, right? One is entertainment. Gymnastics is a sport. So we, we created this new segment we called Sporttainment, and it's this combination of sport and entertainment. We're doing a development program alongside doing birthday parties. We're doing field trips alongside doing our Ninja Nation basics class. We'll have competitions. Uh, at the same time, you can come have a end of season celebratory party for your soccer team. Right, that's very cool. When you think about the scaling challenges you, you face now with, with a small business that's growing quickly, how does that compare or, or you know, sort of what experience do you bring to the table from your past experience with a PE company, you talked about some of the some of the uh, organizations you were involved with in the health industry and others. But what you know, what are some of the lessons from maybe that past life of yours, as far as uh, you know, some of the biggest challenges you've seen, just maybe organizations in general across the board yeah. that you've worked with. What are some of those biggest challenges you've seen? Yeah, the the benefit of having the experience that I've had when you in private equity, you buy these companies, and your job is to help them grow, and helping companies grow can mean a lot of different things. We, I always think about it as scaling the business and how do you replicate that secret sauce that has made the existing components of the business successful, um, given that you've got constraints. There's always constraints around time, people, um, cash, capital, um, you know, kind of any other unique resources there may be for that particular business. And when you buy them, it, you grow them and then you ultimately exit them and you, you sell them. And hopefully you've done your job of creating not only a, a scaled business from where you start, but you've created a scalable engine 
that has this perpetual motion behind it that can keep going well beyond your period of ownership. So I always call it writing the playbook of when you buy a company today, you've got to think five years ahead as to what that perpetual energy machine looks like from scalability five years before you get to that point. Because without that roadmap and without that kind of, it's almost like a, how do I want to present the business? I pretend I'm in a room with some people and they say, here's what we've done. Here's why it's not just a one trick pony, why I can keep doing that. So that was my job for the bulk of my early career. When I created Nation, you know, you those habits that you develop professionally, you apply in all sorts of different settings. I applied it in an engineation setting. So it's the same kind of thing. Not that I'm looking to sell an engineation, but when I look at that perpetual energy machine, what do I need to put in place today to actually have that happen and not be a one trick pony, meaning for us, a single facility. I don't want to be a single, single facility operator. I want to prove that I can have this scalable um, component to our business. That meant uh, investing ahead of the curve. And that's one of my uh, founding investor partners uh, talked about quite a bit. When you invest ahead of the curve, systems in particular are, are really where you do that. What does that mean? For us, systems were um, how the consumer interacts with our business, right? So we went out and we got the same system platform that Orange Theory Fitness uses. They use it for thousands of locations, hundreds or thousands of locations. And we were looking at using it for a single one. Why did we do that? We needed to be able to kind of have that vision of scale. Um, we use RingCentral for our platforms. We use a third party um, software platform for payroll. So uh, telephony, um, billing, IT, and then our core consumer interaction platform from booking classes, birthday parties, all fully integrated system um, for purposes of scale. And scale has a, a, another component behind it, more than just replicability, which is information, right? So we use it for data purposes. All of our waivers are digital. Why is that? Because we use that for marketing information. Moms and dads put in their email addresses and we can remarket future services to them, reminders about their child's birthday party come, or birthday coming up so we can book birthday parties. Um, we can keep track of how many heroes we've created, right? So our number one metric we track are the, the uh, number of participants, unique participants we've had come through our doors, which we've almost hit 200,000 in the last three years. Um, and so we, we do all that so that we've got data and we can turn the data into information and we can use it to track the performance of the business, um, our promotional activities, what kind of results we get from that. Uh, we use it for remarketing purposes, consumer engagement. Um, all those things are things that businesses of our size would never have. I mean, emerging brands like ours, we're so far ahead from a technology perspective uh, that allows us to really scale in a really positive way and then hand that to our franchisees. They're on the same platforms that we're on, um, allows them to run their business effectively 
highly efficiently. Um, and it's a really important component of what we do. Yeah. Yeah. And I, uh, I don't know if you, you and I, I don't think we've talked about this before, but have you ever read that book, uh, E-Myth Remastered? I haven't. I so it's a, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, it's a, it's a book about um, growing a business and how you need, the way to scale is to think about your business like a franchise. And so, you know, it sounds like that's sort of what you did from day one is even before you were actually franchising, you're thinking about how do I get systems and repeatable processes in place to where you could bring in, you know, three, five, 10, 20, however many franchises, and you've got a playbook, you've got a system to do it. So it, it sounds like a basic no brainer, but I think a lot of, you know, a lot of organizations forget that, you know, they, they think, you know, they rely on travel knowledge. They've got heroics, like individual heroics that are driving the business and that's not scalable. You've got, um, processes that are just sort of intuitively known by people, but they're not documented. So it's all the stuff that sort of runs counter to what you're saying. And what I love about your business model is you're, you're totally dependent on being able to scale. I mean, you can't franchise unless you have repeatable processes and systems and, and that sort of thing. So it's yeah. pretty interesting. I think a lot of what you just said applies. You don't need to be a franchiser to do that sort of thing or to benefit from that sort of thinking. That, that that's And I have listened to the audio book version of that book. Um, and I think in that particular example that they had, the uh, gentleman was running his business and he was literally holding everything together. I mean, he was, he was doing everything right. And to your point, you've got to be able to extract that stuff from your brain, um, somehow document it and then empower others to go do it. And, but you've got to have the ability to trust, but verify. And that's exactly how I built this business. Um, so that I could have phenomenal people better, better than me at running the front desk and engineering, but have the systems behind it all. So I had visibility into um, how they were performing, what unique needs they may have that I don't recognize that I could resources I could get them uh, so that they can perform in their roles better. Um, and, and so from day one, I built it so that I could live a franchisee's life of not having to be in the facility every single day, uh, but have enough visibility into this, you know, really cool operation um, from a th via a, a systems platform, a technology and information platform. Yeah, yeah. So you, you talk about the systems, and you, those are good examples of the billing and the uh, the customer engagement, um, document management. Uh, for waivers and things like that. You talked about some of the specific technologies or types of technologies that are critical to you being able to, to scale and add new locations. What about from a pure uh, process improvement or process optimization perspective? Um, and I guess maybe I'll ask it from two different angles. One is for Ninja, for Ninja Nation in particular, you know, how have you viewed that whole or, or how have you addressed that whole concept of, of process optimization and, and continuous improvement? And then I'll also ask you, you know, as it relates to private equity and maybe some of the larger firms you've worked with over the years, how, you know, if it's, if it's different, but yeah. starting with Ninja Nation, how, how do you, how do you treat business processes? How do you manage that longer? So time? being so consumer facing, um, we trust consumer opinion to drive our optimization. There are some uh, unique challenges to consumer uh, opinions in, in, our particular business. Um, 
we take we a lot of that data that we extract and contact information we extract and we do two things from process improvement we do real-time text surveys uh, 24 hours after your visit to ninja nation so your mom or dad will get a text how was your visit to ninja nation it's a rating system we get immediate feedback and then we have the ability to follow up and ask for more details if there was a a challenged experience at Ninja Nation. Secondly, we do very formal um, surveys. And so we probably have done 70 plus consumer surveys uh, using our database on particular topics, whether it's class scheduling, programming, uh, competitions, birthday party experience, um, because we don't, we view process improvement as a, as a daily thing, right? We're, we're driven by consumers um, and we try to incorporate that feedback on a real-time basis. We use information from our systems to tell us how we're performing in certain categories, whether that's class attendance, type of class attendance. Um, we have an introductory class. There's certain metrics we track every single week to understand how the sales of our particular services are um, performing and correlated to the survey feedback we're getting. And so we'll continually uh, try out and test and, and pilot new service offerings based on what we're hearing from our consumers. The only danger we have is we, people that are very passionate about Ninja Nation, they're Ninja moms and dads and they're there all the time. We're trying to help their children become the best athlete they can be. And at the same time, we're bringing in new athletes, which means challenges uh, and the level of difficulty of our obstacles is always something that we're trying to balance because you've got kids that very quickly accelerate in their fitness path and then others that are just coming in so we've got to you know continually protect the experience uh, making it a great experience for beginners as well as you know advanced kids at the same time and then we have a, a, a very empowered leadership team um, we have a value system and we have a mission, right? Our mission is to create a million heroes. Our value system is based on our three E's, engagement, encouragement, and energy. We teach our franchisees the same kind of value system. And the reason that's important is as long as you're doing and taking actions that fall into the buckets of enhancing engagement, driving energy, uh, focusing on encouragement and any one of those things when you're feeding into it from a process improvement perspective you have full permission to go do it um, so there's little limitations we put on driving outstanding consumer experiences as long as you're following that value system all right really interesting stuff and very interesting guy uh he's he's actually someone i know on a personal level too uh pretty well uh, very well i should say on, on a friendship level um, here in Denver, he's based. So uh, good discussion there. In fact, so much good stuff. We're going to come back and take a quick break. We're going to come back and talk about some of the lessons and uh, findings from that discussion. And again, if you want to check that, I'll go back to episode 30 to listen to the full interview, which is close to an hour long. So there's a lot we didn't play for you there. So be sure to check that out if you're interested. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control.
If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 46. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. We just had Wayne Kavanaugh on the show from uh, Ninja Nation. Uh, Kyler, what were some of your thoughts from that, that clip we just played? Yeah, such a diverse group today, which is really fun in talking about processes um, and definitely important to some of the key takeaways we've kind of driven home today of each business is unique and each process is unique. And the way that Wayne kind of described pivoting that model during COVID-19, because he, he has an all-in-person business. That's what his model is and what that looked like for being able to kind of phase back in. And I found it so interesting. I'm curious to hear your feedback in it. Like the, he was like, the first thing we did when we had COVID and I'm waiting for him to say like, do online classes or virtual tutorials. He said, taking care of his people because until he was able to come back, it didn't matter if his people weren't there anymore. So I was curious, cause that kind of um, reminded me of what we were talking about for the labor shortage and the Amazon model, obviously a little bit different than that. Um, but kind of wanted to hear what your thoughts were. Were you surprised by that as well? I was, and I, you know, I knew I've known him for years and I knew him during COVID obviously. And uh, I remember him talking about how difficult it was, but we never really got into that specific nuance that he had paid his people. I didn't know that until that, that interview. Um, so that was very interesting and it, and it is in some ways counterintuitive. A lot of organizations uh, did the opposite and just sort of cut heads and just sort of stop the bleeding, so to speak, when things had to shut down temporarily. But he he looked at the long-term picture for sure, which I think is, is hard to do in those moments of crisis. But obviously, he showed that it, it can be highly effective. Yeah. And in that pivot of really focusing on kind of how are you going to introduce this into a newer market through those that gateway initiative of the birthday parties, um, mm -hmm. you know, of, of saying like we have these different options and now you brought one kid that was really interested in ninja services and now we have 12 that are really interested in it um, and how that growth model really kind of skyrocketed and worked during that time because this was kind of a, a birthday friends and family bubble type of an event and then that can translate to memberships and revenue from there so I thought that was really creative and and pivoting especially during times when you couldn't be full in person. Yeah, and it's also a good reminder of how important flexibility and adaptability are, or what's the other buzzword, uh, because I love them so much, we might as well throw it in, uh, agility. Uh, that's that's another... Uh, for Ninja, too, because you need to oh, be careful. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. In fact, I think he used, that, he used that word at some point in the full interview, but not in the, what, not in the buzzword way, but in actual physical agility. Um, but you're right. It, it, but I think that was a good lesson from all of this, is that you know, not just because of COVID, but even now you look at sort of in this post-COVID world, 
I know we've got new waves and variants always happening and uncertainty of what the governments are or aren't going to do to um, change, you know, the way we can or can't work. Uh, but even if you set that aside, it's just a good reminder that stuff happens and you have to be able to adjust quickly and the organizations that are better equipped to do that are better equipped to succeed. So, uh, yeah, I think that's sort of the name of the game here in the 2020s is flexibility, agility, adaptability, whatever, insert whatever acronym you want there. Yeah. I think it was interesting how you were like, you know, did COVID really push you into the franchisee model? And he almost backed up your questioning and said, well, no, we couldn't franchise unless we got all of our operations in order so that we could package that into a franchisee option. Um, so again, going back to if you don't have that really strong foundation, there's no way anyone else would be able to build on it. So I thought that was, you know, well said on his part to you. Right. Yeah, I thought I agree. That was a good, really good point. Yeah. And and if you have a wild three-year-old son, send him over to Ninja because he'll, you know, he'll get all of his energy out, eat all of his dinner, sleep by eight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's pretty entertaining for kids too. I know my kids have been there a couple of times for, for birthday parties, yeah. so they, they love it. So absolutely. It's definitely a good, good well, business. Yeah, absolutely. It's fun to see all of these different industry stakeholders, you know, one obviously that is very entrenched in operations and business process management. Um, and then another that's kind of on the journalism side and the communication side of digital transformation. And then one that's, you wouldn't look at that and say, hey, that is a digital transformation. But he, again, pivoted his whole business model in order to make sure that his operations stayed foundational when he wasn't even operating. So definitely a, a really cool episode today that kind of sprinkled in a little bit of everything. Yeah. Yeah. And as, as hard as, as hard as it is to data silo and focus on, uh, like on <laughs> and focusing on business process, it's hard not to also talk about change management, the technology stuff. So, you yeah. know, I think it, if anything, it's a good reminder as we try to focus on certain threads within transformation, it's, just, it's a good reminder that's hard to do without uh, looking at the other uh, pieces of it as well. So, um, and speaking of that, we're going to cover, so we've already covered uh, the people side of transformation, the best of 2021 people series was last week or, or the last episode number 45. This episode obviously focused on business process. Next week, uh, episode number 47, we'll focus on the technical or technology side of the equation. So we'll sort of go full on digital uh, nerd mode and talk about uh, technology related stuff. And um but in the meantime, uh, thanks for being here, Kyler. Appreciate uh, all the, the good curation of content here today and the, the good talking points. And thank you, everyone, for listening. I uh, hope you're all having a good week. We'll look forward to seeing you next week on Transformation Ground Control. In the meantime, have a great week, and we'll see you soon. Take care. Mm -hmm.